Good morning, everyone. Uh, so welcome to this pre-lunch session. I hope you all are still fairly awake and not too hungry yet. Uh, so Rondoni Mbovu will now take us through uh, a kind of workshop on how to unlock your non-traditional data for risk analytics. So please welcome Rondoni. Uh, thank you, Lucas. Uh, so the, the topic of this talk is really about using data that we have not used uh, or we're not traditionally used to uh, as actuaries. And this is uh, data such as speech, uh, text, and images, and really trying to look at ways in which uh, we can start incorporating such data sets into uh, our, modeling, uh, our modeling experiences and our modeling techniques as we do. And uh, for example, there's an American insurer called State Farm, and they were trying to figure out whether their short-term insurer, and they wanted to figure out whether someone is distracted or not when they're driving. And what they did there, they used uh, dash cam images, and through those dashcam images, they wanted uh, they put this in a Kaggle competition to detect whether, based on the image, you could build a, an algorithm or basically build a model that says, uh, given this image, the driver is distracted. And that's quite important for stuff like long-haul driving, where the risk of an accident is quite uh, could lead to very large losses. So if you know your driver is distracted, if you had a system to detect that, that could be good, especially for you as an insurer as well. Uh, for example, if you're looking at text. Uh, what if you could uh, look at the contents of an accident report and given uh, what's written in the text, uh, you could detect whether this was a fraudulent claim or perhaps something you can look at. So really, uh, my point of my, of my presentation and the exercise is really allowing us to then trans have the, go through the journey of going from you know, a text or an image into a model that's predictive uh, of risks such as the ones I've just mentioned. Uh, so the way we're going to do it uh, is we're going to uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the, the framework in which we're going to do our thinking. Uh, so it's going to be around, you know, how you model systems. Uh, and really, it's really within the same framework as we do our traditional regressions. Uh, and then we're going to talk about how you design uh, a machine learning solution, how you, you know, you go from uh, rating factors or features uh, into a predictive model. Uh, and then from there, we'll go to you know, the types of data sets that we want to focus on today, uh, which is really around images, text, and speech. And then I'll give some example of some of the work uh, that I've done with, this, uh, with some of these data sets. And from there, we'll have a short discussion, uh, and I'll take you through uh, some of the tutorial. Uh, if any of you registered, uh, the page has not been updated to include the instructions for doing uh, the modeling exercise. Um, apologies about that. Uh, so just about, you know, as we've already gone through some of the contexts, uh, we will take you through the, the rationale of, of how we, we, we build the, the systems, and from there we'll talk about the different types of data sets, uh, go through some examples, and then uh, we'll have a short discussion. Uh, and from there we'll look through the, the, example, the, the tutorial. So really, in any sort of modeling exercise, we're trying to model uh, systems. Really, uh, we, can con we, we can consider any sort of process, for example, an accident process in sort of like uh, short-term insurance. You're really trying to model an underlying system that uh, results in accidents arising. Uh, and when you model such a process, uh, you have uh, potentially there's some inputs that go into that model. And some of them you know, but sometimes you'll have to look at proxies for those inputs. So that's when we talk about rating factors where perhaps uh, the entire functional form of the process that you're trying to model, you, it's not tractable, or sometimes even you do not know the exact inputs, but you can know some of the proxies. And we do that, we fit some sort of a model, which could be you know, uh, some expectation of what we, we're trying to model, and from there we have uh, some sort of error term because we do not know the exact process. 
And when we do that, we use data as representative of the information uh, that we know about that process. So what goes into that process and what comes out of it. And really our training data set or our fitting data set is really uh, what encapsulates our understanding of that relationship between the inputs to that process as well as the output. So that's when we talk about you know, training, uh, even fitting GLMs. That's, that's what we traditionally do. So this is the systems modeling framework is what we already used to doing. Uh, so as, again, as we've already said, uh, some of the principles we're already, we're already using now in life insurance, you're trying to model, you know, the probability of someone, uh, you know, the life and death process uh, using some rating factors or features uh, that one would look at, you know, the smoking, uh, the age of the person and such. And, uh, in in, in short-term insurance, you're looking at, you know, the, uh, the accident process again, uh, and then you have your proxies or your features there uh, again. You know, it should be something like your age and other information such as uh, credit score. And then if you're now going to the realm of non-traditional data, you want to find out if someone is destructed as a function of some, uh, again, representative features of, you know, uh, what is exactly in the image. And we're going to talk uh, particularly about things like that, uh, where in you, what transformations of an image would you use as a proxy uh, for what is actually contained in that image. Uh, so if we're talking about sort of like a machine learning pipeline and how, what sort of ingredients you would uh, need to build such a system uh, for you to go from, you know, your proxies of your process uh, to a predictive model uh, that X and such. So you, as you already know, we'll, we'll need uh, our features and rating factors, and that's what we're going to talk about designing. Uh, and then you have a learning machine, and this is an algorithm that helps you to approximate the outputs of the process, uh, and really it optimizes, uh, you know, your approximation. So this could be, a learning machine could be anything from uh, you know, a logistic regression model uh, to something as complex as a, as a neural network. And then from there, using your features and your learning machine, you can then get to uh, your approximations, be it a classification or regression exercise. Uh, so one of the popular uh, learning machines, the neural network, and which is really uh, a series of nonlinear propagations of your inputs or your rating factors or your features uh, through a series of nonlinearities, and then you get an output, and that output uh, in this case, uh, the nonlinear information that you're performing uh, is just a hyperbolic tangent. And when you get your output, you're trying to, uh, you then train it to optimally uh, predict, uh, uh, you know, the, the actual outputs of the system. Uh, so when you have this, the way you train your learning machine is really minimizing the distance between the output of your, of your learning machine and, um, and the true values of what you're seeing. So that's coming from your tra training data set and that's representative of what you've sampled from the process thus far. Uh, and in something as complex as, and you know when you're doing an optimization, so you're minimizing the error of your training of your, of your learning machine, uh, you have to use gradients. And usually then you attribute uh, the gradients uh, of each parameter in order to minimize this error between what your learning machine is predicting uh, and what you, how your system or what you've sampled from your actual system. Uh, and then, obviously, if you're using something as complex as a neural network, uh, it's a composite function because you propagate uh, the inputs through different uh, nonlinearities. So, therefore, you have to use chain rule, as we know from calculus, uh, and then you attribute that error and you descend through the error curve until you get to a minimum and an optimum uh, basis. So now that we know uh, the framework or the systems that we are going to put uh, sort of our features or rating factors into, uh, we're then going to talk about you know, how you then extract such information or representative features uh, from the non-traditional data. Firstly, if we're talking about images, uh, digital image is really a matrix of light intensities in the pixels. So the pixels represent, uh, in a color image, it will be three matrices. It will be one that represents the color intensity in red, uh, the other one in blue, and the other one uh, in, in green. 
So once you have that, uh, the content of the image is really described by how those light intensities change in, the, in that matrix. And therefore, when you have that matrix, the gradient information of that matrix helps you to then uh, have representative features of what is in your image. So uh, an example of how you, know, you would use such gradients uh, this is a simple black and white image, and really light intensity is maximum when it's pure white light in, black, in, in a black and white realm, uh, and then when it's black, it's, it's, it's minimum. So then when you look at you know, the light intensity function, it obviously, as it transitions from white light uh, to, uh, to black light, it goes to a minimum, and the gradient information there really tells you where the inflection points are. So in an image, it will tell you where the curves are, where the shapes are, and typically in computer vision, we call them edges, and the edges really tell you what the content of that image is. So if you were to look at an image, you would like to represent it by the distribution of gradients within that image. So for example, this is something uh, uh, that you, uh, to illustrate the value of gradients. So this is a picture of, uh, of Usain Bolt. And then if you take the, just the gradients in the horizontal and vertical, and you, and you sort of like render them as an image, you actually get the outlines of the exact positions where you know, Usain is uh, and the shapes that are in the image. So using the gradient information, uh, you can learn a lot about what's in the image without considering a lot of data. So the way you would like to represent uh, an image for a modeling exercise is something called a histogram-oriented gradient. And really, it's about looking, calculating uh, horizontal and vertical gradients. So really, you, you, you're changing, you're seeing how, how light is changing going horizontally and going vertically in the image. When you do that, uh, because you've got the horizontal and, 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 and vertical changes of light, you can actually use your normal trigonometry like, a, uh, like an arc tangent to find out what the angle of the change in light is happening. So what you do uh, when you go through the image, you will then have you know, the magnitude of the gradient, how much the, the, uh, how much the, you know, the, the norm of the, of the two horizontal and verticals, how much the light is changing, and then you'll also have uh, the angle from your normal trigonometry. So in the image, you'll then represent it looking at you know, uh, uh, the gradient magnitudes as well as uh, the directions. And then from there, you want to then uh, have a vector that represents that image uh, in, a, in, a, in a compressed form. So what you'll do then, you, you will build a simple histogram, and that's how we illustrate uh, uh, you know, distributions. It's really about how light changes are, are distributed in that image, and that will help you uh, represent that. So what you'll do is that you will uh, bin the angles of the, what you see in, the, in those gradient directions, and then the contribution of each angle will be, about, will be represented by the magnitude uh, of that gradient. So thus, basically, then you'd have, uh, you know, if an angle of 80 degrees there uh, and is a magnitude of 2, it will contribute, uh, in, it, it, it will contribute uh, its... Uh, its weight there, and that will be a representative of that image. So now that you have this vector, which is basically a histogram, you can then uh, represent your image in a high-dimensional space, and you can start putting it through your learning machine, uh, and then you can start discriminating. So for example, if you have cars of different, uh, of different shapes, you can then, you know, uh, each of them will lie at a different point within that high-dimensional space of histograms, and therefore you can start, you know, you can build you know, your decision boundary around that if you're trying to uh, discriminate between things. Uh, so now that we've sort of like talked about images, uh, we're going to talk about a simple representation of how you would uh, vectorize text. Uh, so text, really, I mean, in any sort of like modeling algorithm, you need uh, your inputs to be in some form of, you know, uh, dimensional form or vectorized form. So the way you would, uh, say, for example, you've got three documents, and documents could be anything from a line, a tweet, or even an email. And really, say you've got these three documents. One says, 
you know, John likes to watch movies, and the other one says Mary likes the two. Uh, you want to create, uh, to vectorize that, you want to create a vocabulary of, you know, the representative words or universe of words that you, that you would like to see. And then each document will be uh, represented by how much of those words in that vocabulary are there, and, and therefore that's the way you vectorize. So basically, uh, you would, uh, uh, sort of like the, the, di uh, the dimension side, so the, you know, the... Uh, the columns in, the, in your matrix is really uh, a universe of words, and you can filter some of those which you feel sometimes are, are more common, uh, and some of them uh, perhaps are, are not particular to the exercise. So this, uh, for example, this sentence, the first sentence is really, or the first document, uh, is represented really by, again, how much representation is John getting? So if you're going to sort of like build this into your modeling exercise, you want to then uh, vectorize, uh, vectorize uh, the documents in, the, in, the, in this particular way. And this is called uh, a bag of words, or sometimes a uh, a document term matrix. Uh, and you can also do counts in multiple, uh, in, in multiple forms. So if you're doing counts here uh, in, in singular form, it's called a unigram. Uh, and then if you're looking at two words at a time, so for example, you want to, instead of doing uh, a count of John, uh, you want to do a count of John likes, uh, that's called a bigram. And you can also uh, find your, your, your document representation in that way. Uh, and that helps sometimes, uh, especially in reducing some of the dimensionality. And this is really the techniques that we use here in Texas, what's in the, the tutorial for the workshop. Uh, and then now we're going to talk about speech. Uh, speech is, um, is quite special because it's, it's a bit uh, technical in the sense that uh, we need to think about some signal processing. But what really happens is that uh, a sound wave is really uh, the amount of energy that is being pushed through the atmosphere based on vibration. For example, if you're speaking, your lips create uh, a vibration, and that's really the energy that's uh, uh, the, those vibrations or sound particles that happen. So when you sort of like a microphone would get uh, the speech signal, which is really the energy at different points in time. Uh, so uh, the, the way we process speech uh, is using an interesting result, which was found by Joseph Fourier, which says you can represent any signal or a function uh, as a sum of components of sine waves. So you can represent any function uh, using a linear combination uh, of sine waves. So basically, if you're looking at a speech signal, you can tell a lot about what's being said uh, in a speech signal by looking at the frequency content. So basically, uh, the Fourier transform will allow us to have different sine waves or different frequencies that approximate the signal. And therefore, by looking at those frequency contents, uh, we can therefore tell a lot about what it says. And sometimes, because the, the speech signal is quite dense and not statistically stationary, we usually, uh, if we're doing a word recognition or a speech, uh, speech recognizer, you want to uh, sort of window it and, and break it down to small segments such that you can process it when stationary. Uh, and then you normally don't look at words, but look at phonemes or sometimes uh, subphonemes because of the density of the data you're getting. Uh, so the features that are really state-of-the-art in what most speech recognizers are using is something called uh, malfrequency uh, capsule coefficients. And this really, you get a, a speech signal, and what you do, you want to take it uh, into a Fourier domain or find the frequency content of that, of that signal. Uh, so you'll do some windowing to break it down into little parts, and then for each little part, you'll take the, the Fourier transform. And once you have the Fourier transform, because it actually uses Euler's formula, it's a complex expression, uh, you want to actually just get the magnitude, which will represent the amount of energy uh, within each uh, frequency. Uh, so once you have that, uh, there's just a small uh, uh, later transformation to turn it into uh, some understanding of how uh, we perceive speech, we perceive sound. So uh, the human brain processes 
sound logarithmically in the sense that it's called a, uh, it's called a, ma a malfrequency space, which basically says, you know, there comes a certain point where if the volume goes up, you cannot tell linearly uh, the differences in how much it's going up. So then uh, for us to then use it in something like, you know, speech recognition, we will then uh, have to uh, transform into the, ma the malfrequency space. And that's really uh, a logarithmic transformation. And from there, once you do, do that, you can then just take a cosine transform, which is really just a PCA. And it's going to tell you how much uh, energy is attributed to each frequency. And that, those coefficients are what represent the speech signal. Uh, so that's really, uh, you know, building it out. So it really, you will represent a speech signal uh, by a list of coefficients uh, that represents the, 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 the energy content in different frequencies. So uh, I, I thought it would be relevant to talk about hidden Markov models in the context of speech uh, because it's a natural extension to uh, the Markov models we see in natural literature. But hidden Markov models are an extension in the sense that you have you know, a stochastic process which, goes through, which transitions through various states. Uh, and, but the only thing that, that, that happens, the only reason it's hidden is because you do not see the state the process is in, but you see an emission of that state. So given uh, the state that you're in, uh, the distribution of what you see from the process is different. And that's the exact problem we're trying to solve in speech. So for example, you want to recognize what somebody has said. Uh, the person is transitioning between saying different phonemes or parts of words, and they're going uh, that way. And th that affects then those coefficients, the distribution, the, because you, only, you don't observe what the person is saying, but the speech signal. So once you have those coefficients, the distribution of those coefficients, you then decode the, the hidden Markov model to then uh, find out uh, what the person is saying. And such, uh, this sort of modeling is, is quite standard in speech recognition. Uh, applications like Siri uh, uses uh, things like this. So uh, after then using, creating those features and putting them, to, uh, that you'd put into your learning algorithm, how do you then, uh, I'm going to talk about some of the examples that I've worked on uh, using such, uh, such, such, uh, such, such data sets. So for example, for images, uh, also just to, for illustration of my next example, uh, I use a different learning machine, which is an extension uh, to the neural network I've just shown you. Uh, and this is a convolutional deep neural net. And it's quite topical in, uh, in, in image recognition and it's really driving this whole deep learning phenomenon. Uh, but really, uh, in addition to the nonlinear propagations uh, of, of your inputs in your neural network, uh, th there's an additional operation, which is really uh, about spreading uh, the pixels, uh, the information in the pixels in the image around, around the image. And that uh, actually results in some outperformance. So you'd have uh, an operation called a convolution, which happens in the beginning, uh, which is really a, 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 a matrix of weights that weights uh, the different color light intensities uh, and distributes them around the image. And once you actually do this uh, and fit that through a learning algorithm, it is shown to have uh, quite significant outperformance in a lot of uh, uh, image recognition and sort of like algorithms that are going into self-driving cars are using uh, such architectures of neural networks. So um, in, in insurance, an example I mentioned earlier, uh, this insurer actually put it up as a Kaggle competition. And Kaggle is, a, is, a, is, a, is an online platform uh, where people, where, where companies with, uh, with sort of like analytics ideas put out for people to solve. And me and a colleague of mine, when I was doing my master's, uh, we entered this competition uh, back in Stockholm. And really, uh, the, the, the idea was we had about 22,000 images and we needed to build an algorithm to classify what the person is doing uh, given the dash cam images. Uh, and what we did there, we used a deep neural network as I've just shown you, uh, and then we needed to predict about 10 classes, you know, whether the person is talking, whether they're on a cell phone, and, and, and those kind of things. But uh, it's important to know that this was a, a synthetic data set, so there are some 26 actors and created those images. And when we did that, uh, we... 
No, <laughs> that's for the actuaries. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, so then what we did, uh, we managed to get accuracy of that um, of around 98% using the deep neural network. Uh, but then when we when we started, we started realizing that the neural net network was also not necessarily picking up the action, but it also picked up significant information about the individual. So once we sort of like created a, a testing set uh, that actually, uh, you know, have because we're 26 actors, uh, uh, not depending on only the action, but also the actors, uh, the, the, the accuracy d dropped to like around uh, 59, 55%. And that's because, uh, again, uh, machines tend to overland and you need to give them inputs that are representative of the entire process. Uh, so when you have a synthetic data set such as the one State Home gave us, uh, it doesn't, you need sort of like a life setting of how this process happened in real life and that's one thing that could potentially improve so we submitted this uh, at the time of submission uh, on this platform we got a rank of about 184 out of about a thousand uh, it, do, it deteriorates with time because people submit and we've just stopped we're just doing it for for a master's project uh, so, and this is an example uh, I've used uh, in the exercise that uh, is on the webpage that uh, if you registered, you've seen. Uh, and here is using text. I used the same features of text, vectorizing them using counts. Uh, and here we're trying to classify movie reviews. IMDb is a popular website where people give movies ratings. And I basically, based on the content of that review, so the words that are said in that review, the task was to predict uh, whether the person, uh, whether, whether there was a positive, i.e. the rating was, less than, was, was greater than seven, and then if it's negative, the rating was less than five. Uh, so I used a simple logistic regression model, so I vectorized uh, uh, the documents, as I just mentioned, and then put this through a logistic regression. Uh, and these are some of the, so I used, firstly, I built a model based on unigrams, i.e. counts of single words. Uh, and then if you do this, I, I test the different cutoffs of just the probability that the GLM gives. And you, around there, you get an accuracy of around uh, 80, I think it's about 82%, and you'll see in the exercise. Uh, and if I use biograms, actually, the, 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 so this accounts of two words. Uh, the accuracy there got to about 70%. So it seemed like uh, the wo singular words were actually more telling uh, than uh, looking at combinations of them. And, and, and you'll see when, when you look at some of the coefficients. Uh, so once I fit those models, I just looked at, you know, the highest positive and the highest negative coefficients, so the, the, the ones that were most likely associated with a positive review uh, and the ones that were most likely associated with a negative review. For example, uh, if you look at, you know, if, if you, this is the top coefficient, so the ones that push the probability of having, of having a positive review, you see words like enjoyable, excellent. Uh, and so those words are quite telling of what the review outcome would be. Uh, and then for the negative ones, you can see worst, awful, uh, dull, waste, uh, uh, poorly, and a mess. So it's always, uh, you, we're doing this, and it's not in such exercise when you use a, GL, a GLM, which we know how to interpret, you can then see why some of those decisions are, are made. And looking at the combinations of words, so this is a biogram, and uh, here you can see some people who actually, in their reviews, wrote they're going to give it an 8. So actually those, those came through as well when you do the modeling. Uh, you also, you know, highly recommend. So that helped, uh, you know, in pushing the review up. Uh, you, know, you know, the negative ones, you know, uh, awful film, how bad, you know, all those kind of things are <laughs> were coming up in, as, the, as, the, as the big negative coefficients and driving that probability down. And for speech, I, I used the same principle using a hidden Markov model uh, on those uh, MFCCs. And also, this was part of my master's uh, program. I did it with a colleague of mine from Croatia. And really, uh, we used the data set that Texas Instruments was trying in the early 90s uh, to have a voice calculator. 
Uh, so they recorded a whole group of people uh, giving you know, uh, numbers uh, 0 to 9, uh, as well as O, I think, because you say 9O and something like that, so they add that as well. Uh, and, and then what we did, we had about 8,000 utterances, uh, put it through... Um, here in the Markov model and the emissions, it could be any distribution. So given you know, the state that you're in, the emission could be Gaussian, or some, and, and those parameters, the mean and the variance, depend on the state that you're in. Uh, but here, which is the state of the art in speech recognition these days, uh, you actually model uh, the emission uh, distribution using a neural network. Uh, so what we did there, we got about an accuracy of around uh, 95%. And this was uh, this is actually the confusion matrix. And uh, given that there was a small sample, and actually the, the words were quite distinct and, and, and representative, uh, we got quite uh, good accuracy there. Uh, so just to round it up, uh, you know, so I think this are uh, good uh, you know techniques and methods perhaps for us to start incorporating in an actuary's toolbox. Uh, and perhaps, you know, as we've talked about, uh, you know, it could be used fundamentally in developing new products. You know, how do you interact with your customer? How do you, you know, detect fraud perhaps in claims? Uh, how do you build a product that incorporates, you know, destructive driving? Uh, how do you, you know, perhaps, you know, include a lot more open text or analyze, uh, you know, operational environment system notes uh, in a way that you can start building, you know, predictive models using the data set that you're generating from there and start, you know, making full use of the data. Uh, and I think stuff like neural networks is really a natural extension of, of current techniques. I mean, neural network is really, you know, a logistic regression with more than one node. Uh, so it's really, you know, just combining th those, you know, logic transformations uh, into more than one and weighting them further. So it's really, you know, a natural extension to what we already know. And from my experience, a lot of computer scientists, I don't know if there are any in the room, uh, and engineers, they have a very strong programming background. But really what's driving this uh, in, uh, underlyingly is really uh, the statistical context. Uh, and really we as actuaries can contribute there uh, a lot. And really, you know, when you're using the more complex algorithms, uh, you get uh, superior accuracy. But how do we have the debate around accuracy and interpretation? Uh, and there's a lot of research work that's going on there. Uh, but really, you know, how much of it, and that's, you know, especially in the actual realm, uh, where perhaps we need to then find, you know, that you know, trade-off between accuracy and interpretation. Uh, and some of the, you know, the more companies that, you know, big in machine learning and using data, there's this concept, and, and the results that I've shown are based on running the algorithm that I've trained on a separate uh, unseen test set. And, and when they do that, for example, Google, if they have a complicated translation machine, uh, the way they test it is how it performs on an unseen data set, because they, it, they can't explain it, there's so many parameters, but if you can get uh, within some level of company confidence how it performs on a testing set, uh, that could be a way for us to use uh, as a way of, of, of getting comfort in, you know, the, the level of generalization you can get from such models. Uh, so, again, uh, perhaps there are some areas where we could start experimenting. Uh, so that's, uh, that's really what I'd like to convey uh, from just the, the work that I've done. And from there, we will go through uh, the movie review exercise. Uh, if uh, the web page is now up with that, uh, and I'll just go through it on screen, and just, uh, just you know, talk about how you would go from transforming the text to, to something. But I think before we go there, I can open it up to questions. Peter. Sorry? Sorry. So, um, Ask your question again. Right. So this presentation was great. This presentation was not great. Okay. When I vectorize that, I, I end up with this one extra word, which changed my rating from 2 out of 10 to oh, 9 okay. out of 10. Oh, sorry. I thought that was... <laughs> 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 I was like... <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do you allow for that... How do you allow for that... The addition of that one extra word, which changes the meaning... 
completely. And if I thought of, uh, if I think about what you had there, mm -hmm. the word great had a certain weighting. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, so how do you deal with the negatives? So you have two vectors. Uh, one that says not at, at zero, at zero count, and the other one says not at one. And therefore, you have a result that says, well, when you're training, so you have, you have the, whether the review is positive or negative. And when you fit a GLM just like any other, it will give you know, a negative weight to not, which will pull down. And uh, given uh, perhaps you know, all those reviews that you're getting in your data representative, it will therefore uh, you know, give a negative review in terms of it's more likely to be negative, given the presence of the word not. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 that was a <the> close one. <laughs> Sorry, just a bit related, I guess it's also how do you deal with typos and people that don't use spacing and commas instead of spacing. Do you guys have like some sort of spell check algorithm that converts the data into sensible words first and then? Yeah. yeah, so as you'll see in the tutorial, uh, we, usually, uh, you know, we usually tokenize the words. Uh, so basically tokenize them, is, it means you, 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 know, you look at the spaces and break down you know, and you do the distinct count. Uh, and usually you also do lowercase which that you know, the same word is, is done and then that's all in the tutorial. Uh, and sometimes you, you have, I mean, those kind of errors, if they're coming through, unfortunately, unless you, you prune your, we'll do some pruning. So sometimes if you have a long list of words, you might say, you know, because, for example, in the, in the exercise we're looking, you might have 6,000 6, 6, distinct words, but say you want to narrow it down to the top 2,000. So those errors that arise uh, when you narrow it down, uh, you, can, you can let go of. So any, any more questions? Uh, sorry, you mentioned that like during the study you guys did on the different drivers and stuff. What additional information did you guys gather around like the? What additional information was gathered around the drivers' patterns, given if they're drinking or like uh, on their cell phones, etc. Yeah, so the model only made a decision on the basis of the image. Uh, so that's, it's almost, if, if you're deploying such a solution, it will almost be at a real-time basis. So the model is constantly, you know, taking, you know, because videos, again, are just a series of frames of images. Uh, so when you, it will go through a series of those frames and then run the algorithm, uh, find the probability of someone, uh, you know, being distracted or being in one of those other classes, and therefore it will trigger something. So we didn't, uh, and you can incorporate that. Uh, you, can, you can build that in as well. Uh, so, but we only looked at images. Just a bit broader. Mm -hmm. uh, it's often been expressed that this machine learning and so on would take our jobs. Um, how likely do you think that it would happen? And uh, what role do we have or can we play in either slowing that down or actually... <laughs> Come on, I'm just an average guy talking about this stuff. But I think, I think for me, what I've seen as well, spending time with people from different disciplines, is the fact that you know, the algorithms are great, but it's really seeing, but a neural network will never deploy itself, will never find a solution to a problem. You will say you want to use a, you, you, you want, so what actually I think we should do is identify the business value of different algorithms. So it first comes from understanding them, what they can do and what they cannot do, and where in our business we want to deploy them. So it's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be a lot of time we spend on, you know, uh, you know, processing data, on sort of like, you know, competing on processing models and stuff, but really our work is really about, you know, specifying, giving, you know, some specific 
simplification to some to a problem wherein you 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 accurately design those inputs because the inputs are quite important. If you have terrible inputs, uh, you're going to get uh, a wrong result. So us is actually understanding the process and specifying it well enough for the AI. And I think that's still going to be an ongoing task for, for people to do. We are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll have to evolve slightly, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the presentation. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think we can implement this into like actuarial education? Is it practical to put it as an extra subject or to include it in the syllabus summer? Okay, so being in academia, I've seen now the, the curriculum 2019 from the UK. And they have started, uh, I think, uh, some of the exercises and actually some of the exams, some of the CT exams, you're going to have to do some exercises in R. And some of them are around building decision trees and neural networks. Uh, so from 2019, it's going to be in. But uh, my feeling is that some of it is a little bit behind current trends. Uh, but at least you, you don't necessarily need to know everything when you're studying, but you, know, you have to know where it goes to and what it can do. So I think it, it, that uh, in, uh, being added will give some additional platform for actuaries to perhaps start experimenting with this as well. Yeah, so it's in the syllabus. <laughs> okay, uh, what are we doing for time? Are we good? Okay, so this is sort of like a, a notebook uh, on how I sort of like went about building the models for, uh, for the movie review data sets. Uh, so these are some of the preliminaries. I don't know. Uh, when, you, when you're now working in a university, you become very instructive. Uh, so these are some of the packages that I used, and I'll keep this web page up uh, for at least a month, and then it'll, it'll go. Uh, so, but really, uh, the library that is used in R to, to vectorize, uh, and when you look at the code, R is not really my first language, but I used it because it's easily portable and, and used in, in Windows, but uh, it, it, we do solve the problem. Uh, but the R package that, uh, that, that does the text vectorization is a package called text2vec. Uh, and really, okay, so this is just the loading of the packages. And the data set uh, was, uh, you know, about 5,000 reviews. Uh, I used uh, 3,500 of them for, for training, for fitting the model. And I used the remaining 1,500 to test it. And that's where uh, I, I sort of look at it. And, and really, uh, the specification of the data set, and this data set is publicly available. Uh, less than five was a rating of, uh, you know, was a negative uh, review. Uh, and greater than seven was a, rate, was a positive review, and that was a one. Uh, so here, uh, some pre-processing that we did. Uh, so um, if, you, if, if, if you want to look at it through, if you cannot see, you can perhaps look at it over your phone. Or I can show the link, the, the link to the tutorial again. But uh, so here we're really uh, loading the data set and uh, using what is called regular expressions. Uh, to trim some of the stuff, because some of the text actually, and this actually means that uh, you're going into a next line. So some of these things might be, and this is some nuisance, uh, sort of like um, uh, things you could find in the text. So you sort of like, you know, remove that. Uh, you also remove some punctuations as well. Uh, and this is just now, you know, uh, sampling uh, 3,500. Uh, and then uh, and then this was uh, just, you know, getting the remaining uh, uh, 1,500. Uh, and this is what uh, the data set sort of looked like. Uh, so you have uh, a review ID, uh, and then from there you have the sentiment, uh, which is one or zero, whether it was positive or negative. Uh, and the text was something like this. So someone writes an essay, uh, you know, uh, after success of part four uh, was a natural, okay, so I won't read it out, I'm a bad reader. Uh, but really, this are, these are the words that we're vectorizing for different documents. Uh, 
Uh, so when you, after, when you so this, uh, be a bit. Let's do this. Uh, then we start doing our vectorization. So I, I put some stop words, and stop words are words that you want to filter out in building uh, your algorithm. So uh, these are some of the words that are, you know, words like there, some prepositions, uh, and those kind of things. Uh, so I remove them because they sometimes inflate the count, and really want words that are telling what the review, uh, whether the review is going to go, you know, south or it's going to be a very good one. And then from there, you you then uh, tokenize, which is then again just building uh, distinct. Uh, uh, you know, d distinct words or then, uh, for, for you to create that vocabulary. Uh, and then this vocab operation, create vocabularies, again, you know, create, you know, uh, find the distinct words uh, while removing the stop words. And, and that's what this operation was doing. Uh, then I, I, I did, and I think we talked about uh, some of the errors. So I did uh, what is called pruning. Uh, and really I said, well, if the word is going to occur in my vocabulary, it must occur at least in all those documents or all those reviews at least 10 times. Uh, and if it's overrepresentative, uh, also I actually uh, left it out. So it must be, its, it's document proportion was uh, limited at 95%. And other parameters, and I also said I needed a maximum uh, of 1,000 uh, words in my vocabulary. Uh, then from there, I, I then, uh, I then uh, basically uh, sort of like indexed each of the distinct words. Uh, and then from there, I then create, and this operation uh, creates the, the, the bag of words or the, or the, date, uh, or the document term matrix. And, the, and that's really, you know, you, you, these, are the, these are the tokenized uh, training sets, and this is the vectorizer. So just then to, uh, to link it to, uh, to those distinct words and do the counting. So once we have that, uh, you basically, so we're just checking the dimensions. I mean, I had 2,500 and by 1,000 because my vocabulary is, is 1,000. And just to check now, uh, you know, my, uh, my, my document term metrics. Uh, so it's, you know, the, uh, the, the review ID. And then this is just now the, each of the words and then how it's vectorized in the counts. Uh, and then from there, it was uh, I did a, a normalizing operation, and this just says uh, to make sure each document, uh, all those counts, just basically uh, um, normalize them to sum to one. So basically, each is just a proportion of its representation uh, in the document. And then from there, uh, this is just a, a GLM training. Uh, it's using a GLM match. Uh, so I fit, I put the training set into the GLM, and then from there, I basically now just vectorize the testing set because I've, I've vectorized the, the training set. So this was vectorizing the testing, the same operations that we've done already. Um, uh, so this was then uh, taking the vectorized testing set and putting it through uh, the classifier. So it's basically making predictions on the new vectorized text test set. And the next operations are just around uh, calculating, you know, performance, you know, stuff around. Uh, this is the accuracy, 81.9%. Uh, and then there's the area under the curve uh, for the ROC curve. Uh, and that's how, using that, uh, we plot the accuracy using, uh, so that the 81% is really the maximum, uh, usually around. Because sometimes you find, I once worked at a company where uh, when we were modeling uh, some of the risks, uh, they didn't experience them to such an extent that you cannot use a, a cutoff of 0.5. You, if you want your model to be discriminative, uh, you want to you know, look at uh, lower cutoffs. Uh, uh, so th that's really, we got, but I think our, our maximum was around 0.5. And then the rest was just producing uh, 
the receiver operating characteristic have, uh, which is really, again, your, your, your true positive rate versus your, uh, your, your false positive rate. And really, you always want, want your, your true positives to grow higher uh, than your false positives, and, and that's what we get here. Uh, and really, that was you know, just uh, an introductory exercise to this. Uh, so I think uh, I repeat the same exercise for biograms, which is really the same principles. Uh, and uh, and those are the coefficients you get. So basically, looking at the top, co top 20 coefficients, uh, I used 10 there, but yeah, it's really how you get those from the model as well. Uh, and I repeated this uh, for higher order n-grams. Uh, so this was, uh, you know, biograms, so the, the, the pairs of words counts. Uh, and that was really the exercise. So I think uh, you can go look at the link if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, this is the end of the workshop. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Any more questions? Hi. I was just curious, I mean, on one possible use case which you probably already have experience in, but I mean, how good is the technology at uh, listening to a voice conversation between a call center advisor and a client and telling whether the client perhaps had some emotions, was upset? to sort of scan yes. through those converts. Yeah, so that will definitely come through the MFCCs. Uh, and when you build such systems, you want uh, annotated examples. So you would perhaps, you know, a client case or some sort of, uh, you know, servicing uh, query that someone put in and there's a complaint. And then you, you, when you want to build your training set to build the technology, uh, you will map that uh, to, what, uh, to, the, to, to what, what happened in the call. So if you had a case, it's a, it's a complaint. So that's a one. And then you, but you also need to keep the ones where it, all everything went well. And that will go into, into building this model. Uh, I've seen, I think, in the UK where they're using uh, such things to detect cases of, of mis-selling. Uh, so based on, on, on sort of like, you know, the, the MFCC, you can tell uh, some sort of, you know, whether someone is making, uh, again, you can, based on what, on the cases you've already seen, you can start mapping, you know, those, those features uh, to, uh, to the outcome. Thanks. Great presentation, Rindanam. Um I just want to check, uh, you, you said it yourself that R is not your first language, uh -huh. but what other statistical software packages that you find being used on the market for yeah. such work? Yeah, so uh, my, my, my first computing language, I have to state, uh, is Python. Uh, so Python, I think, works quite well, uh, and it's really well, development, uh, well developed and works uh, slightly faster than R. Uh, MATLAB also can be used uh, because I was a student I shied away from some of the commercial softwares uh, but you can get a lot done and, and it's, uh, if you make decisions at your organization perhaps look at you know how much you can get done with R and Python uh, before uh, getting a license of something expensive but sometimes uh, it could mean additional lines of code but some of these things they're actually uh, as packaged as you'd see in in commercial software so I think R and Python are doing well in this in this sector okay so if there's no further questions, uh, we can almost break for lunch. Uh, so thank you very much, Rindani. Uh, please remember to rate your speakers on the app. And then just one final announcement. Uh, so due to the huge popularity of Nene Mulefi's Developing the Skill of Inclusion workshop, uh, they've extended the venue to accommodate a few more people uh, during that session today. So if you have registered already, you'll be given preference there. Um, but it's, if you haven't, you can still attend, but it's first come, first serve during that session. Um, yeah, so if you want to attend, please leave your details at the registration desk uh, during the course of the day. Uh, so we'll then break for lunch. Uh, so I think we're a bit early. So thank you very much for joining.